You can't fight a war on certainties. If it succeeded, excellent. If it failed, I would catch the devil. Dangerous to us, the attack also would be dangerous to the enemy. Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett, Commander, 1st Corps, American Expeditionary Force, from his memoir, AEF, 10 Years Ago in France. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 75, Breaking the Argonne. Light on admin notes this time. Shout out, this episode goes to listener Johan from Sweden. Thanks for the nice email, man, and photo of a Swedish sunset. I hope to get over there someday. That's really about it. So, back into the line. If you are able to follow along with Google Maps for this episode, you want to get yourself to Exermont, France. Okay, and I will spell. That is spelled E-X-E-R-M-O-N-T. As we have talked about before, by the 30th of September, the majority of the frontline divisions of the American First Army were worn out after four days of fierce combat. There had been little to no resupply of desperately needed food, ammunition, and replacements for the thousands of dead and dying doughboys lying in the shell-torn French fields of the Meuse. One division, the 35th, had for all intents and purposes disintegrated. It was now being hastily relieved by the veteran 1st Division. The American Expeditionary Force and 1st Army Commander General John J. Blackjack Pershing had grudgingly accepted that his forces needed time to reorganize and resupply before he could batter them against the iron wall of the German defenses before them. All of the divisions were exhausted from the offensive launched on the 26th of September. But not all were allowed to rest and refit. On the 1st Army's left, the 77th and the 28th Divisions kept on fighting the Germans in the deep gloom of the Argonne Forest, an unrelenting contest that saw the forest itself as great an adversary as the German soldiers within it. New plans were drawn up for the army-wide resumption of the attack on the 4th of October, 1918. First Corps, with the 77th, the 28th, and now the 1st Divisions from left to right, would continue to focus on clearing out the Argonne. The 1st Division, operating in the River Air Valley east of the forest, would push up to clear the western end of the Romagna Heights to the north. In the center of the American line, the 5th Corps, now made up of the veteran 32nd and 3rd Divisions, would continue to be the main effort of the offensive. 
these two units would attack northward to seize the remaining part of the Romagna Heights to gain tactical superiority while breaking open the Hindenburg Line. To the 5th Corps' right, the 3rd Corps' 80th, 4th, and 33rd Divisions would press forward and take the Cunel Heights to the north, breaking open the eastern end of the Hindenburg Line there. Opposite the Americans, newly installed German 5th Army Commander General Georg von der Marwitz, his staff, and his men all knew the Americans were to attack again shortly. It was an inevitability, but the testimony of captured doughboys confirmed it. Our focus this episode will be on the First Corps, who continued attacking all through that tactical pause in early October 1918. The 77th Division battered away at the Argonne Forest, increasingly pointing its efforts towards the relief of Major Charles Whittlesey's surrounded forces in the Charlevoix Ravine. To their right, about half of the battalions of the Pennsylvania 28th Division ground their way up the Shentondu Heights, while the other half fought a merciless battle in the Air River Valley for the ruins of Apremont Village. First Corps, new to the Meurs-Argonne but not to combat, worked to establish where the shattered 35th Division's front line had been. The regiments of the 1st dug in on a line running from Bonny to Eclefontaine, partially along what is today called the D-242 Road. To the north lay the Bois de Montreuil, and beyond that, Exermont village, from which the doughboys of the green but willing 35th Division had been ejected. Dawn came early on October 4th, when American artillery unleashed their morning hate on all known enemy positions. At the designated time, the companies and battalions and regiments went over the top as the gunners behind them adjusted their bombardments further forward. In First Corps sector, the depleted companies and battalions of the 77th hurled themselves up the Havane d'Argonne in an effort to break through to the surrounded men in the Charlevoix. Further east, the Pennsylvania doughboys of the 112th Infantry clawed their way up La Chentendue and took it, only to have the Germans claw it back again. These are stories covered in previous episodes, so we won't dive into them again here. In 1st Division sector, the attack followed the course of the River Air in a northwesterly direction. Attacking with all four of its regiments abreast, the Big Red One, as the division would be called after the literal Big Red numeral one on its shoulder patch, attacked toward the Bois de Montreuil, Exermont, and Fléville beyond. With the Germans having known of the impending second wave of attacks, the Doughboys ran into a storm of heavy machine gun and artillery fire everywhere. Lieutenant Maury Maverick, an officer in the 28th Infantry Regiment of the 1st Division's Right Brigade, was in the thick of it that day. From James Hallis's book, Doughboy War, Maverick recounted, quote, The American division 
35th, was still retreating when we went in. They had broken. Other soldiers were needed. I was back with the infantry, and Frank Felbel, a little Jew, was commander of my company. He was shy. He spoke of art and the opera. I knew little about such subjects and was not very responsive. October 4th, we attacked. 5.35 in the morning was the H-hour. It was thick, black, dark. Just before the attack, up and down the lines, you could hear the American lieutenants yelling, God damn it, don't you know we're going over the top at 5.35? On the German side, there was only empty silence, a vacuum. We began to think that they had retreated. Working through some barbed wire, little ditches, and mud holes, we were in proper line to advance under our own barrage at the minute of 5.35. We started, but the Germans were there. We had reckoned without a German rear guard action, and no doubt they had heard us telling our men to get ready. They were soldiers who had trained four years at the front. They had left their lines checkerboarded with machine guns, had left their men in the rear to fight to the death, and had slowly moved out the heavy masses of troops. Most of us who were young American officers knew little of actual warfare. We had the daring, but not the training of the old officer of the front. The Germans simply waited, and then laid a barrage of steel and fire, and the machine gunners poured it on us. Our company numbered 200 men. Within a few minutes, about half of them were either dead or wounded. Felbel was killed outright, and I did not even see his body. A runner came to me and told me he had been killed. I took command of the company. There was not a single sergeant. At this moment of 5.35, everything happened that never happens in the storybooks of war. We literally lost each other. There were no bugles, no flags, no drums, and, as far as we knew, no heroes. The great noise was like great stillness. Everything seemed blotted out. We hardly knew where the Germans were. We were simply in a black spot with streaks of screaming red and yellow, with roaring giants in the sky tearing and whirling and roaring. I have never read in any military history a description of the high explosives that break overhead. There is a great swishing scream, a smash bang, and it seems to tear everything loose from you. The intensity of it simply enters your heart and brain and tears every nerve to pieces. Although so many men had been killed, there was nothing to do but keep on going. I remember very distinctly that I held my head down a bit, figuring that a bullet would bounce off the steel helmet, which I thought I was wearing. Then I figured that, at that particular angle, if one hit me on my chin, it would tear my chin off and leave me disfigured for the rest of my life. Then, holding my head up, I began thinking that it would hit me and knock all of my teeth out, and probably my eyes, and make me blind. I suddenly realized that I had no steel helmet at all, I had been wearing the helmet on top of my overseas cap, and it slipped off without my feeling it. But this was no time to be worrying about hats. We had to advance. And in front were dense growths of trees and barbed wire to keep us from going farther. 
There was a lane down the middle and no other way to go ahead. Dead men lay along the lane, all Americans. I felt sure that there was a German machine gun on the other side. I did not want to go through that lane. But the men began to waver a little, and I figured it would not be right for me to lay down or stop, so I moved ahead. I said to myself, This is one of the finest dilemmas I have ever been in. I must go through that lane, call for my men if I don't get killed, and get a hat. I need a hat. I need a hat. So I started on through the lane and reached down and borrowed a hat from a poor fellow who had no further use for it. But it didn't fit. It was much too small. I'll find a bigger one, I said to myself. I got through the lane and my men came through too, without being killed. Then I looked on the battlefield for a hat to fit my seven and five-eighths head and tried several and found one. So, with a new headpiece, I reformed my lines. On the other side of the open space I found as I had suspected, a German machine gun nest. But the Germans were dead. One of them was hanging over his gun. We started to advance again. A shell burst above my head. It tore out a piece of my shoulder blade and collarbone and knocked me down. It was a terrific blow, but I was not unconscious. I think it was the bursting of the shell, the air concussion, which knocked me down, and not the shell itself. It was not five seconds, it seemed, before a medical corps man was dressing my wounds. He cut my coat away from the wound and wrapped up my shoulder in such a way that it would not bleed too much. As he lifted me from the ground, I looked at my four runners, and I saw that the two in the middle had been cut down to a pile of horrid red guts and blood and meat, while the two men on the outside had been cut up somewhat less badly, but no less fatally. It reminded me of nothing I had ever seen before, except a Christmas hog butchering back on the Texas farm. Leaving the field, I was forced to walk slowly. Suddenly, I found I had been walking around in circles, for in clear view ahead was a German machine gun nest. I had circled back into the German lines. I was wearing only my breeches and shoes, my undershirt had been cut off, and the torn blouse had been thrown over me like a cape. Because of my wound, my left arm was useless. But I had an automatic in my right hand. I decided to get heroic and kill a couple of Germans. There were six or seven of them. Their helmets stuck up a little above the smoke on the battlefield. The place where I stood had been thoroughly shelled and was still being shelled. There was no wind, and the smoke lay close to the ground. As I remember it, one of the Germans was standing, but the others were close down and plugging away. So I thought it would be a swell idea to take a crack at them. I cocked my pistol and got ready. But I realized that my automatic pistol would not even reach them. They were out of my range. But I was in range of their machine gun. If I had shot, they would have heard the pistol, turned, and knocked me off. So a spirit of good humor, or good sense, came over me. It was then that I remembered the words of Captain Bill Tobin, fire chief of the great city of San Antonio, who came to me as I left for France and said with a solemn face, My son, remember this. It is better to be a live son of a bitch than a dead hero. And so 
I turned around. It was the smartest thing I ever did in the war. End quote. On the 1st Division's left flank that day, the 16th Infantry Regiment attacked through withering machine gun fire at Exermont Ravine, just south of the village, before continuing all the way to Fleville, where they were forced to pull back. To this unit's right, the man of the 18th Infantry seized Exermont itself and kept going until they were stopped at the southern slope of Montrefagne, known on army maps as Hill 240. On the right, the 28th and 26th Infantry Regiments attacked up the eastern end of the Exermont Ravine, clearing out two farms in sharp fighting. Overall, the division made the largest gains that day for both 1st Corps and 1st Army as a whole, pushing forward a mile and a half into the German lines. The advance came at a cost of over 2,000 men. The next day saw further attacks, but with little movement from the 77th and 28th Divisions. 1st Division, in the hilly but more open ground, continued to grind ahead. A joint attack by the 18th and 28th Regiments saw Montrefagne Hill captured with extraordinary heroism ever on display. From the National Medal of Honor Museum website, it was the attack on Montefagna Hill that saw St. Louis native Sergeant Michael Ellis, quote, operating far in advance of the first wave of his company, voluntarily undertaking most dangerous missions and single-handedly attacking and reducing machine gun nests. Flanking one emplacement, he killed two of the enemy with rifle fire and captured 17 others. Later, he single-handedly advanced under heavy fire and captured 27 prisoners, including two officers and six machine guns, which had been holding up the advance of the company. The captured officers indicated the locations of four other machine guns, and he in turn captured these, together with their crews, at all times showing marked heroism and fearlessness." End quote. But there was, of course, always another hill after the one you just took. Northeast of Montrefagne was Hill 272, and fire from this position stopped any further advance that day. The Americans of the 1st Division had, however, pushed forward a further mile and a half, and they were now three miles past the right flank of the neighboring 28th Division to the left. Despite the near-fanatical resistance of the Germans, they were being pushed back. They were also being stretched ever tighter and tighter. First Division's attacks, costly and grindingly slow as they may be, were pulling the Germans to the breaking point in the Aragon Forest. Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett realized it was time for a bold plan to clear that forest and to relieve Major Whittlesey and his beleaguered force trapped in Charlevoix Ravine. The 77th Division was fixing the German forces before it in the western end of the Argonne, and from there, the enemy would be able to pull zero troops to shift to the Air Valley. 
In fact, it was around this time that Major Hunnigan was getting some Sturmtruppen loaned to him from forces fighting in the air. The 28th Division was equally heavily engaged in both the Eastern Argonne and the Air Valley, keeping the Germans busy there. The 1st Division's doughboys were doing the same. Liggett proposed a plan to his corps staff. Between the right flank of the 28th Division and the left of the further forward 1st Division, Liggett aimed to insert a brigade of the Reserve 82nd Division into the line. From there, the fresh doughboys of the All-Americans would attack between the villages of Châtel-Cherry and Fléville, striking into the German flank and rear. French liaison officers attached to 1st Corps staff opposed the plan absolutely and without hesitation. The American staff officers opposed the plan too. The 82nd would have its flank exposed as it attacked, and they were too far back to get up to the front quick enough. Liggett pushed for the plan anyway. Pershing approved it. Further up the chain of command, General Pershing needed a win. The three full days of combat since October 4th had seen few gains. Pershing now put new plans into place. On the 7th, 1st Corps would hit the Argonne flank and eliminate the German resistance there. The next day, Pershing would finally unleash the French 17th Corps on the right bank of the Meuse and destroy the German artillery batteries there. On the 9th, 5th Corps would go all out to take the Romagna and Cunel Heights. Pershing hoped this would put enormous pressure on the German forces facing his army, pressure enough to break them and their defenses. And of course, you folks know what that means. Jupiter's rooster. I have a lot of episodes to write in the near future. Oui. Major General George Duncan the commander of the 82nd Division, and thought of by some as, quote, thick as mud and not worth a damn, end quote, received his orders from Lieutenant General Liggett on October 6th. Duncan, a friend of Pershing's and a fighting general of the type Pershing wanted, acted on those orders. The division's 164th Brigade was alerted and put on the move. Orders came in around 6 p.m. on the evening of the 6th, the attack would jump off at 5 a.m. the next morning. The 164th Brigade would insert itself on a line generally between Châtel-Cherry and Fléville and facing west. The brigade and its sister brigade, the 163rd, had originally been composed of draftees from Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee when the division was formed in the summer of 1917. In October of that same year, many of those original members were transferred to other units, and the replacements the 82nd Division received were from New England and other East Coast states. There were a fair number of immigrants new to the United States now wearing the country's uniform, and so the division was soon called All-American, which is what the AA in its shoulder patch stands for. And of course, 
One of those Tennessee men in its ranks was one Alvin York. The 82nd had seen limited fighting in the San Miguel Drive, suffering around 1,000 casualties. But for a fight like the Merzargon, it was still much too green. Deployed on a north-south line between Châtel-Cherie and Fléville, the 82nd deployed its 328th Infantry Regiment on the left and the 327th Infantry on the right. The 328th was to seize Hill 223 to the immediate northeast of Châtel-Cherie. The men of the 327th were to take Hill 180 to the north of Châtel-Cherie and then push northwest and take the village of Cornet. Châtel-Cherie is an elongated village built on the slopes of two hills, the just-mentioned Hill 223 and its southern and slightly higher neighbor, Hill 244. It was from this double-peaked ridge that the Germans had several artillery emplacements that had been raining hell down on the attacking Americans in the Air Valley. Châtel-Cherie and Cornet needed to be eliminated as centers of resistance. Rain, nighttime darkness, unfamiliar destroyed roads, and German artillery fire made the morning jump off late. To avoid enemy suspicion, American artillery launched no preparatory barrage on the intended targets. Rather, a rolling barrage in keeping with harassing and interdiction fires, led the way for the attacking doughboys. On the right, the men of the 327th swiftly seized Hill 180. It was at Cornet that the Germans rallied and made a stand that stopped the doughboys. On the 82nd's left front, the 328th launched its attack on Hill 223 very late, it was almost noon when they were fully organized from their chaotic night march. Their lateness had caused the troops of the 28th Division on their immediate left to attack with their right flank open to hostile fire, which the Germans gladly gave. Nevertheless, troops of the Keystone Division's 110th Infantry Regiment wrenched the southern slope of Hill 223 from the enemy. They also took the northern half of Châtel-Cherie, which had been momentarily abandoned by the Germans. The 328th 1st Battalion took the northern slope of Hill 223 by about 1230. Corporal Harold Pierce, a Pennsylvania man of the 28th, had watched their attack. His account comes to us from Dr. Ed Langle's book, To Conquer Hell. Quote, I pity these men, for ahead of them is a two-mile stretch of open country under observation. Officers new to the front making another mistake. I say a prayer for them and then watch through field glasses, fascinated to see the slaughter. The battalion starts in perfect alignment and reaches the middle of the first field. Over in the German horizon, there is a crumph. The telltale whistles as a salvo speeds to them. 
Most of them take it standing up, another sign of green troops. The next salvo of 77s comes, and before the shells burst, the entire line disappears in the tall grass. They rise, a little disorganized, and press on. Another salvo, and again, they disappear, rise slowly after the bursts, and again move forward. The shells come oftener. The battalion loses contact and bunches confused, but still moves on. Soon, they are all running forward, all formation gone as the shells search the ground and find many victims. About half make the stretch even with us. Back in the field, men are moving slowly back, limping, carrying others, while many more must be sprawled out dead. End quote. The fresh doughboys of the 328th took the crest of Hill 223 and established a hasty defensive line on it. The 82nd Division had advanced a half mile and taken two hills. To their south and slight southeast, the 28th Division doughboys went on the attack. The 55th Brigade took part in the assault on Chatel Chéry with the 110th Infantry attacking in conjunction with the 328th mentioned above. The 112th Infantry attacked the south end of Hill 244, and this hill was the linchpin of the local defense network. If General Liggett's plan was to be a success, Hill 244 had to be taken down. Colonel James Shannon, Commander, of the 112th Infantry, and an officer loved by his troops, organized his battalions for the attack. Even before the rolling barrage began at 0500 that morning, his doughboys were already advancing through the pre-dawn fog towards the village of chatel Chéry. Corporal Harold Pierce was in that assault line. Quote, We break into a trot for a hundred yards. And then, about 200 from the town, we begin to charge, a regular, old-time infantry charge. The enemy machine guns and infantry now awake to their danger, see us. Bullets whip by, hit the ground, and stir up the dirt. The entire regiment is on the run forward, down a sunken road, climb the bank, running fast. A wide patch of barbed wire is ahead, but we make a running broad jump and clear it, as bullets spatter into the wire. For the first time, I see ahead and behind the town a large cliff where the Germans' guns are flashing. We run through an orchard as a shower of bullets hit the ground beside me, and hand grenades from the cliff burst in front. A man to my front curls up and rolls over on his side with a pained look on his face. We pass him on the run, cross the main street, and into the houses under the cliff. End quote. Colonel Shannon improvised his plans on the fly, ordering one battalion to go straight up the steep eastern slope while another battalion flanked around to the south. Moments after he issued these orders, a German machine gun cut both him and his executive officer down, killing them both. A captain suddenly found himself a regimental commander.
On the left of the 28th Division's front, the 111th Infantry Regiment, known as Ben Franklin's Associators, as the unit's lineage could be traced back to the 1740s, hurled itself at Le Chentendu once again. The combined pressure worked. The Germans buckled. And then they broke. Orders went out to all German forces in the Argonnenwald to pull out of all remaining Giselherr line positions and regroup at the Kriemhildestelling positions further north. Le Chantendu was finally evacuated by the enemy, and the drawn and tired Americans seized its ridge once more. This pressure, along with the attacks of the skeletal 77th Division breaking through on their front as well, led to the relief of Major Charles Whittlesey's forces in the Charleville Ravine that evening. It was a major break in the German defenses in the Meuse front, and it represented a major achievement by General Liggett, his first corps, and the AEF First Army as a whole. Post-war, German Major Hermann von Gierl wrote a series of articles in the U.S. Army's publication Infantry Journal that have been republished as Battle of the Meuse-Argonne from the German perspective. Von Giel wrote that on the 7th, quote, After the withdrawal to the rear of the Argonne line, the Americans pressed extremely heavily in the direction of Châtel, and varying combats developed on the western bank of the air during the course of the day, the chief objects of which were the possession of Châtel, the chateau-crowned hill lying to the north of it, and the so-called Gutausicht, Bellevue, west of Châtel. End quote. Von Giel here seems to be acknowledging that the American plan had indeed put insurmountable pressure on the German line at Châtel-Chéry. That afternoon of the 7th, the war continued on, although Sergeant Whitford Barrett of 28th Division's 103rd Battery found himself part of an unusual undertaking. I'll let him tell you the story himself. Quote, There is a certain satisfaction and a rather peculiar joy in strafing the Hun with his own guns and ammunition intended to blast out the way to Paris. On the afternoon of October 7, 1918, Lieutenants Cartier and McAdoo and myself started on a hunt for German 77s which were not too badly used up to be of value as a weapon of offense. After trying several likely positions and consulting friends of a lieutenant among the officers of the 53rd Field Artillery Brigade, we at last found ourselves at the headquarters of the 107th Field Artillery, which was located at the town of La Forge. Lieutenant Colonel Crookston led us up on the hill overlooking their position and showed us a gun which some of the members of his regiment had been firing since its capture from the Huns a few days previous. This gun was in perfect condition, and Colonel Crookston very kindly turned it over to our officers. We had seen plenty of ammunition lying around in different places, particularly an old German dump just outside of Verhen on Argonne and anticipated no difficulty 
in securing a sufficient supply for our needs. As it was rather late in the evening by this time, we decided to return to our billets, making plans to return the next morning to send our presents, which had been made in Germany, back to little Heine. The following morning, immediately following breakfast, a number of us, under the command of Lieutenant Cartier, including Sergeants Shires, Kohler, Grant, Kor, Kahn, Cariani, Benfer, and Swiney, and Cook James Scott piled into trucks and drove to the gun position, which was in the ruins of an old chateau. As none of us was familiar with a gun of this type, the method of laying it, etc., Lieutenant Cartier went over it all, explaining and demonstrating everything to us. Then he picked several gun crews, and we opened our little party. Everyone took great pleasure in working on the gun and pulling the lanyard, which released a bunch of H.E. or shrapnel to do its worst, or best, among the cultured beings over the line. T'was here that Scotty, the cook, came into his own, and with his deep-sea walk swaggered up to the gun, and to use his own words, crowed a few iron rations over to Jerry. Sergeant Shires, Corporal Kahn, and I then put over a little sweeping barrage of our own, which lasted several minutes. Corporal Kahn was loading, and he certainly knew how to make every move count, for believe me, we got him off fast. We had brought our dinner, which consisted of stew, coffee, bread, and jam, and as we had all worked pretty hard on loading ammunition that Buzzy Grant had been bringing up to us by truckloads, we sure were ready for it by noon. Shortly after we had finished our meal, Captain Knowles arrived on the scene with the news that the second platoon was scheduled to go up into the line at La Chentendu that night as soon as possible after nightfall. This caused us to suspend operations with the 77s, as we well knew that there was plenty of work ahead of us preparing for the party that night. Tired from our work and knowing that there would be no sleep for us that night, nevertheless, we returned to our billets a happy and contented crowd. For as I said at the beginning, one derives a certain satisfaction and peculiar joy from strafing Heine with his own pet plaything. End quote. The Argonne Forest was now being evacuated by German troops, and the surviving men of the Lost Battalion would shortly see their ordeal come to an end. The fighting, as ever, continued. It continued in the vicinity of Chatel Chery as well, and October 8th would see a small infantry patrol that would catapult itself with one man at its head, into World War I legend and history. Next episode, we're going to talk about the story of Alvin York and his squad's fateful patrol into the woods. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at www1podcast check out the bfwwp website firstworldwarpodcast.com for some photos and check out 
the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.